Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read Liftoff, The Story of Conserve by Hema Hatsangadi and Ashish Sen. When Hema Hatsangadi became the CEO of Bangalore, India-based Conserve in 1996, it was a struggling producer of energy meters. Over the next decade, Hatsangadi led the transformation of Conserve from a family-owned enterprise with a million U.S. dollars in revenue into one of India's leading energy management corporations. In 2009, the company was acquired by a large multinational. In Liftoff, Hatsangadi tells the story of Conserve's transformation. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell, and I'm a management consultant. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's talk about Hema. Who is Hema Hatsangadi? So Hema Hatangadi was, as you mentioned, the CEO of Conserve from 1996 until its sale in 2009 to Schneider Electric, a global corporation headquartered in France. She was born in New Delhi and raised both in New Delhi and then later in Darwad. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in commerce from Karnataka University and then did her MBA at IIM Kolkata in 1987. She ultimately joined her husband Ashok's company in 1990, which would ultimately become Conserve. She was originally focused on marketing there and, as we mentioned earlier, became CEO in 1996. So her husband's father had originally founded the company, and when he stepped down, her her husband took over as CEO. But after a few years there, he really wanted to focus in on engineering, and he thought that his wife with you know, an MBA and you know, great skills where she'd been with the company for, for many years could you know, take over and lead the firm, which she did to, uh, to great success. And now tell us a little bit more about the company. What business was Conserve involved in? What did they make? What did they do? So they were originally called Enercon Systems, and it was a manufacturer of voltage stabilizers and digital meters. And so it really was about energy efficiency, effectively, right? They were building technology that allowed companies to, you know, measure the energy that was going out. It gave, you know, the energy companies more control over what was happening. It gave corporations more control over how much energy they were spending. And so they were an early player in this market in India. And ultimately, they were able to get significant market share there, as well as uh, to get, you know, uh, certified internationally and actually go into the global market. So they even sold these uh, energy meters in the U.S. under some kind of white labeling relationship. It's funny, she mentioned this that many times, but never actually talks about it. So I wonder if there was some kind of NDA or something about the, the fact that they were Indian products being sold in the U.S. And then they eventually also added a, an energy consulting service. And so they realized that, you know, selling these products was difficult and there was a lot of like lack of education. And frankly, they needed to kind of do the consulting projects for other companies to show the value of the products that they could provide. And so they kind of extended into that professional services category as well. Take us back to the 1980s. How did Conserve get started? So as Short mentioned, Conserve was originally Enercon, which was founded by Hema's father-in-law, H. Vasanth Rao, in 1988. And Enercon, the name, was actually a combination of the words energy and conservation. And I think What's really interesting, so H. Vasanth Rao was an engineer, so he created these meters that were the original product that they sold, but he also seems like he was a, a good businessman in terms of, in 1988, he 
realized that energy conservation was going to be important. So at the time, the state-owned electricity boards were investing in electricity in India, but it was uh, resulting in these contracts that were set up where users had to pay 75 or even up to 100% of the contract demand that they had. Um, So energy conservation, therefore, wasn't really discussed at the time because you had to just use all of the energy that you had signed up for. But he preconceived that this was going to be an issue in the future and that these large industrial players would want to regulate their energy, conserve their energy in in order to save costs. Um, So he started to build digital energy meters at the time. And that was really the start of it. And then know, it obviously transformed into conserve over the years, but largely stayed within the family and as a family business. So the company is founded by Hatsangadi's father-in-law and her husband. How does she go on to become the CEO? So I talked about this a little bit earlier, but essentially when the father-in-law retired, he did have his son take over as CEO and he did continue in that position for a little while. But A few years before that, they had also taken outside investment. And so the first private equity company in India provided, you know, a significant outside capital injection to basically save the company when there was a a breakup between the father-in-law and I believe it was his cousin or his nephews or something. So basically he had built the company to just be a manufacturer and then he had outsourced to another family company the marketing of the product. So all of the sales was outsourced to these um, other you know, members of the family. And basically, they just weren't doing a great job. And so Hema actually had been you know, quite aggressive about the fact that you know, she felt like they weren't you know, pulling their weight. And I think that was a, a big part of you know, ultimately her you know, stepping up within the company and ultimately taking over as CEO was that she recognized that there was an opportunity to market this and that you know, they weren't going to succeed if all they were focused in on was the, was the manufacturing. Yeah. So at the beginning, um, Hema worked elsewhere and worked in marketing. That was what she had kind of studied in her MBA. And she had a role in marketing elsewhere. And then when she originally started at Conserve in a sales role, I would say at the in the introduction in the book, she refers to, oh, who would have believed that I would go from the lowest ranks within the company as a salesperson to become the CEO? And then a few pages later, it becomes clear that it's a family business and that she married into it, to it. And I was like, okay, that seemed a little less genuine to me that you're like, oh, it's unbelievable that like me, I would be in this role. However, uh, and I'm sure we'll come to this, I, you know, throughout the book, it, she is referencing, you know, this is the 1990s in which this happened in India. So gender inequality was very real. And maybe it really was truly unbelievable that Vasant would see his daughter-in-law or that Ashok would see his wife as somebody to be considered for that role. One anecdote that I liked in the book uh, about how she became CEO was when one of those original investors, uh, so T. Thomas, came over to their house, actually, to have dinner at the time when Ashok was CEO. And Hema's kind of fretting about what she's going to make for him, ends up making meat pie. So this is like little section of the book is called the the meat pie interview. And a few days, weeks, I don't know, later, Ashok emails T. Thomas to say, 
you know, I, I don't want to be CEO anymore, but I think that my wife would be a great CEO. She has an MBA. Why don't you please just make her CEO? And T. Thomas was like, I saw that immediately. I could tell at the dinner, I just wanted you to understand that your wife was going to be a CEO. So I, I think there was a bit of inspiration and mentorship from T. Thomas very early on with seeing the potential of Hema for that role. Yeah, I, I did think it was a pretty incredible story because I just honestly haven't really heard of it anywhere that like a you know family business gets passed down to the son and then the son decides, no, actually my wife should be the one who runs it instead. Like it just is kind of, Kind of an incredible story, especially, I think, in the context of, of India in 1996. There's a lot of hagiography of T. Thomas in the book, and I actually did do a little research on him, and he really is a very well-known business person in India. So I can understand why it was so such an honor, it seemed like, in the book for him to be a mentor to the company. So when Hudson Gotti takes over the company, they have about a million dollars in revenue by the time... They are sold in 2009. So this is 13 years later. They have about $35 million in revenue. So how did she go about building Conserve into this much larger, much more successful corporation? It's probably hard to summarize this in a few neat points because I think that this is kind of just throughout the book. She's talking about different strategies that they took on and also a lot of marketing strategies, I would say, you know, as her coming up as a salesperson and from a marketing role. But I would, I would really actually just sum it up as she seemed like she was constantly learning and looking externally, looking to mentors and looking to other companies, businesses, industries for ideas. And therefore, I, I would say the book for me was a little hard to keep track of like what centrally was the strategy and we can hit on some of those key points but because she's just like listing like and there's like several vignettes that are two paragraphs long of she's like and then we try this and then we try this and then we try this and it just seems like she was always striving to be better and constantly learning so so that to me was just like the central reason as to why they became a successful corporation but then you know specifically i think that Hema really did focus on marketing, which was interesting because it's a B2B product. And it's it's not just a B2B product, but it's a, it's a commodity. It's energy meters, right? But she did focus on marketing and differentiation and making sure that they were selling a better product and creating personal relationships. And then in a classic business case study, I think she opened it up beyond the product where they added, as short referenced earlier, the services line. Right. So that they could actually help companies with their energy conservation and be a cost savings product, not just a cost line, um, you know, as a commodity. So those are those are the two things that I noted. But I'm, I'm curious from both of you how you would kind of summarize what drove the success. So I think one thing that she focuses on a lot is frankly, like family. And so it, it really did seem like the relationship that she had with her employees was like very genuine and close and that she knew all about all of their kids. She would ask them about them. She like really made family a priority. They even really encouraged nepotism in the company, which is quite different from what you tend to read about. So not only, you know, was, was it a family business, but they would encourage all of the employees to like also have their spouses join the company and to have them work together. And so, you know, they, they 
you know, love each other and they get to spend all day working together. And frankly, like their, their lives are really tied up into the company. And she even talked about, you know, paying off people's mortgages sometimes and things like that, that because it was like such a, a close knit community that that, you know, was, was a big part of the, the culture and their success. I, I'm sure we'll go deeper into, into this piece, but one other thing they, they focused on a lot was ethics. And so again, I think quite unique from what I was expecting in terms of a, an Indian success story in the, the 90s is she claims that they were incredibly ethical. They would not pay any bribes and that that was a huge problem, but that they did manage to, to work their way to, to find the good people within co- companies who really did want to save money. And that frankly, a lot of the time what she would do is go straight to the top. So one of the first marketing campaigns she talks about is literally just her writing letters to the CEOs or managing directors of the largest companies uh, in India and just based off of their publicly released statements saying, hey, you spent this amount on energy. It's grown this amount like over the last couple of years. Like if you don't get this into control, this is what it's going to be, you know, five years from now. Like you need to come talk to me and my energy meter company to, to, to save you in the future. Yeah, I liked that marketing tactic. It, it just showed kind of that she did her homework. Right. Like, and, and early on in the book, I don't, we didn't talk too much about her growing up, but it's like evident that she's just a very hard worker. And I think that that marketing campaign of writing those letters to the CEOs of companies just show that she was going through looking, looking through all of the public data available of how much that company was spending on energy and doing her homework and telling them what they could save by using her products. Sure. I, I also really liked the, the point of nepotism where, yeah, she, very outwardly looked to hire the wives of a lot of the engineers that were working at Conserve. And I, I think it was it was a bit of nepotism. It was a bit of making everybody very happy at work, but also identifying that there was a lot of untapped potential in women in India in terms of uh, in the workforce. And it, it reminded me a bit of uh, the book that we read earlier this year, Let It Go by Stephanie Shirley, where she had focused on hiring a lot of stay-at-home wives and women in particular just because they were untapped and they were trained in IT and they were able to do the work, uh, but they weren't being hired by the larger players. And I think that uh, Hema kind of identified that opportunity as well. You actually both touched on things I didn't like about the book. One thing you mentioned, Eli, was about this laundry list of different strategies and it was hard to make any of them memorable when they were presented in such a short form. And then, David, you touched on this family atmosphere at the company, and a lot of that was promoted by quotes from former employees. And to me, those quotes were kind of felt like puff pieces a lot of the time. But I'm sure we'll come back to kind of talking about the book more broadly towards the end of the episode. On the nepotism front, you know, it's interesting because that happens a lot in academia. So kind of a husband and a wife become a package deal. So if a university hires one as a professor, they have to hire the other one too. And it it might not legally be allowed. I don't even know what the law is around that sort of thing, but it certainly happens all the time in academia. And it actually works out pretty well most of the time in my anecdotal experience. But I want to use something you touched on, David, as a transition. So you started talking about ethics. And of course, a lot of people know that 1990s India was a challenging ethics environment because of what you had to do sometimes to get something approved by officials. And they really get into this quite a bit in the book. And Hadengadi's very proud of the ethical leadership that Conserve had throughout its history. Can you tell us a few examples of that ethical leadership? And do you think that being an ethical corporation worked 
to conserve's advantage? Or do you think there were actually some challenges there that they ran into that were pretty evident from the book? One thing I would start off with there is just how conserve was actually introduced to T. Thomas, who we've mentioned as uh, their chairman and one of their main investors, was because their cousins, uh, who short referenced earlier, were incredibly unethical. So the cousins who they had been working with as the marketing agency, it was a little hard to follow, but I, I think at some point they tried to acquire Conserve and they didn't sell, right? So I, I forget if, if it was Ashok or Vasant that was running it at the time, but they refused to sell. And so the cousins just broke off and left them without a marketing agency, but like took all of the pieces that they had already developed and then tried to develop the product. And then went about shopping this energy meter product around. They brought it to T. Thomas, who said, this is a great product. How did you come up with the idea for this? And I guess in the terms of the one ethical thing that they did do is that they told him, oh, it was like my uncle or my cousin, whatever, uh, has developed it. We wanted to acquire him. He didn't let us. So we decided that we would just make a competitor. And T. Thomas was like, wait, what? I, wa- I want to find the originator originator of this and went and found Conserve. And that was how he was actually originally introduced to Conserve. He reached out to them before they reached out to him. And I think it just like points to T. Thomas was a very ethical person. So he didn't want to work with those cousins. When he was put in contact and did find Hema and Ashok at Conserve, he was very impressed by their ethics. And it seems like that's what started a really strong relationship. And, you know, they just pushed to have a really ethical company. So that's just like an example of from the very start that they were being ethical. And, you know, I don't know exactly what they were doing that was like being ethical, but they were not being as unethical as their cousins at the very start. And I think that they just started to see the returns from being um, an ethical player in the space. And in fact, Hattengadi fired some employees for some ethical lapses. Do you remember those anecdotes? Yeah, I remember at one point, I think I think this was under uh, a little chapter called Fire Them All. <laughs> um, and so she had gone um, up to one region and discovered that several employees were skimming off the top or they were taking kickbacks. So I think it was like three of the regional managers were taking kickbacks from the uh, clients. And uh, she learned about this during her visit. And had a dilemma about what to do. They had really been pushing to have an ethical company. She went to T. Thomas as her mentor and asked, what should she do? And he said, first of all, to fire them all and then um, to make examples of them, which also I, I would say reminded me of the Netflix book that we read. So she fired them, despite that meaning leaving that region without any regional managers. So didn't like look for excuses of, oh, for the business, we need them to be there or something. And then told everybody at Conserve that they were fired and why they were fired. So really using that to make an example and showing just how committed they were to ethics, even if it meant that, you know, maybe they weren't going to be able to hit their sales targets in that region because they were left without any regional managers. Yeah, and I I think there were quite a few examples of like them making those tough decisions to show exactly how committed they were to ethics. And I know in the book, they also talk about how they use this as a business case at HBS and Babson and other colleges. And there's always an Indian student in the room who's like, well, this is ridiculous. This is not how it would actually work. Like for my family business in India, you know, you just have to pay bribes. It's the way that things work. 
and then they get like more and more into the details and they're just like they recognize oh this company like they really did focus on differentiating themselves with ethics yeah the one other story i remember was i forget what agency they were dealing with exactly but basically one of the the senior officials was not you know processing their paperwork because they wouldn't pay her a bribe and so she finally just went to like the head of the department and said, hey, like one of your officials won't process my my files. Like, what do I do? And he was like, oh, yeah, we know she's terrible, but no one will write a complaint about her. And then, you know, Hamo was just like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll write everything down. And so, you know, she, she kind of makes it seem like there always is there always are good people in any environment. And you just need to find who those people are. And hopefully they're at senior enough positions that they do really care about like the success of their business and don't want to have, you know, their their lower employees getting kickbacks and whatnot, because ultimately it hurts them as well. And so, you know, she was just adamant about things. And I feel like she probably sugarcoated things a little bit, just in the sense that I imagine there must have been cases where they really did just fail to get the deal because they wouldn't pay the bribes. And I'm sure that that was more difficult. And she tends to focus more on like the the examples where everything worked out. But but I, I do, it, it does seem very genuine. And she does have a lot of different stories about the way that it, it changed the the way that they did business. Yeah. And, and Kopec, I know you asked originally, like, was it worth it? And, you know, it, it, it seems like it was because they were differentiated for it. And obviously, you can see that they gained market share and they gained revenue. So it doesn't seem like they suffered because of it. I was wondering as uh, she was going through and telling all of these stories, just like, why focus on this so much, right? Like, and kind of having myself worked in developing countries before and like knowing that often bribes are just part of the system, right? Like when you need to get visa approvals and such, it's just like you pay in cash and that's part of it. She she does talk about like this line she said was integrity is not about cost benefit. And it's true because if, you know, if you look at it and you're like, okay, well, it costs $10 to just pay this bribe and get the paperwork approved. That costs a whole lot less than the 50 hours it's going to take to file a complaint. And so maybe you should just pay the $10 because like, if you're looking at it from a cost benefit perspective, that's more efficient. But I think because she was, you know, and the company as a whole was so focused on ethics, that's just not how they looked at it. They wanted to ensure their suppliers and their clients that, you know, they were an ethical company through and through. So that that was the viewpoint they used. I don't know. Did did either of you feel like you saw stories as to that they were successful specifically because they focused so much on ethics? I don't I don't know if I saw that specifically, but, you know, it, it was certainly that they felt she felt that there would be long term success because of it. I would imagine that the exit opportunity, having like a European or American company ultimately buy you is you're in a much better position to do it when you have this, you know, history of, of ethical standards, because frankly, like the the legal standards on, um, you know, foreign, you know, foreign practices act and things like that for uh, for publicly traded companies are that like any bribes anywhere are, you know, like crimes uh, based off of, you know, the the U.S. or, or European laws. And so I, my guess is that it was quite helpful for, for them to be able to get acquired that they had that history of, of ethics. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's a really good point. Also, perhaps attracting some of the great mentors that they had within India. It seems like T. Thomas was really into this angle and he was a really important mentor to them. So we've talked a little bit about ethics being a differentiator for Conserve. Um, what other differentiators did they have? So reliability seemed to be a big focus of theirs. And so, you know, they implemented a lot of processes to ensure, you know, proper testing, 
and you know quality of the the product that they were producing. I, one of the stories I remember them telling was one of the sales executives was was trying to make a sale, and you know he had their meter and the competitor's meter in his hands, and he threw them both down, and the competitor's meter broke, and the conserve one didn't. So you know it just it actually was a, a better product, able to handle the the Indian climate and whatnot better than a lot of their competitors, at least so they claim. Yeah, similarly, I, I think just because they had a well. The result of having a better product was because they had Ashoke. And it did it did seem like Ashoke, as the key engineer at the company, was just a very good engineer and had attention to detail, was forward thinking in terms of thinking of like what the market was going to need in the future um, and not just building copycats of what was out there. So for example, they were building digital meters when everybody else was just building analog and trying to add um, more details to those meters and such. So I think that he was pretty differentiated. And that actually came up when they were, as one of the reasons when they were looking to exit um, and selling to Schneider, that they just needed to deleverage from their reliance on Ashok. And they needed to build more, I I guess they had many engineers at the company, but they needed more innovators at the company on the same level as Ashok. But I think that was one of the big differentiators in their early days. We've talked a little bit about T. Thomas. How did mentors like T. Thomas influence the trajectory of the company? How did they influence Hatsangati? So I, I think he was actually critical to her becoming CEO. I think had there not been that outside capital in, it does seem like Ashok's father did not really want her to be the CEO, actually, and that it was T. Thomas who you know agreed with Ashok that it was the right move that that allowed that to go forward. So I think he especially was incredibly important. Yeah. And I mean, T. Thomas is mentioned in, you know, just about every other page in the book in terms of she went to him to see what his advice was. And I I didn't look it up. I wonder if there's any book about him. I'm sure that there's a whole lot of thinking in there. He also brought on R.R. Nair. So that was somebody else who she frequently referenced in the book. He had worked with T. Thomas at Unilever and was a strategic HR consultant. So R.R. Nair helped them with setting up many of their processes and such. Outside of those two, I, I, I said this earlier, but I, I think she really just like looked broadly very frequently. So throughout the book, she cites a lot of business leaders and authors. She quotes things that they've said, many of whom that we've actually read as part of this podcast. So it's clear that she spends her time reading business books as well. And then the, the other thing, which uh, we can give it a bit of a laugh, but she took this five-day course at Harvard, uh, Leading Change and Organizational Renewal, which she credits a lot with helping her to really consider, like, look internally, consider what is she is doing at Conserve, what, you know, what Conserve's role is, what their mission, value, and purpose is, and used that course to really push um, more organizational change. Uh, within Conserve. And the the laugh I will say is that she references that course and the like quote of when I was at Harvard throughout the book to a point where it is kind of humorous. But, you know, she clearly did learn a lot from that course. And, you know, I, I, I think like used used her five days there and came back to the company and tried to apply those lessons. Yeah, that's funny. I, I did 
also pick up on the the Harvard dropping constantly. It's, it's like, okay, it was a five-day course. Like, uh, I actually, for a second, I feel like I did start to think she had gone to Harvard for her business school. And I was like, oh, okay. She, she did go to Harvard Business School, but for an executive education course, she did get her MBA um, from IIM, which is a great program too. But it was just like, yeah, she, she, does, she does drop it a lot. Yeah, she clearly came back from that course with some tools in terms of management technique. Can you tell us a bit about some of the management tools and larger business practices that helped her create conserve success? I feel like the biggest one that she focused on from from Harvard was around being challenged by the employees and so like wanting to create a culture that did allow for innovation to come from everywhere for people to notice problems and speak up about them and to not just like defer to to anything that she said to to make sure that that they felt empowered to, you know, suggest improvements even if they were one against what she might have said. Yeah, and as we've mentioned there was certainly like kind of a laundry list of uh buzzwords that she mentioned so this like techno ready marketing, manufacturing process design, job rotations, benchmarking. Um she was very into benchmarking. Uh, of, you know, she just kind of like lists all of these things. And I would say without too much detail is like what they actually did with any of it. But she certainly tried to apply many of these tools that she learned either from Harvard or through other sources. One one tool that I actually did think was interesting was this R&D advisory council that they built, which included, so it was, a, it was a cross industry council. They had their suppliers, they had their customers. I think they actually had like, some of uh, their clients and distributors that were on this council, and they would just bring them together to help think through what's the next big thing that we need, right? Like really understand feedback from customers. How are you using these meters? What's not working? And then also like they introduced a new pricing scheme that they brought to this council. And I just thought that that was really interesting in terms of like having the council understand why they wanted to change their prices and have them even agree to why they would want to increase their prices because they wanted this council to see that like, here's how much our component parts are. So if we're not charging you more, then we're not making enough of a profit to stay running. So don't you understand? And like bringing them along with this thinking, which really, in, you know, in all of the books that we've read, I I don't think that we've come across something like so specifically that is like sharing so much detail with your customers. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And it did seem like it helped them in terms of like with their innovative thinking, um, but also just continuing to have a very loyal customer base. Yeah, I think in the U.S., especially with publicly traded companies, they start to get very cautious about some of these kinds of organizations because they can seem like they're opportunities for collusion. And so it it is like it's cool and interesting, but it's also like, you know, <laughs> having everyone in a, in a room together to like talk through where, where all the pricing should go and whatnot uh, can be seen in a, a negative light from a regulatory perspective. Now, again, she talks about it in a very ethical way and whatnot. There's like nothing in it to 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 say that anything nefarious happen there. But I, I do think that that's what tends to happen in, in other markets is those are considered like, you know, potentially uh, illegal organizations. Okay. Well, I thought it was cool short, but way to, way to shoot it down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I found it bizarre. Like um, to me, I think a lot of times a company thinks about its margins as a trade secret or a competitive advantage. And some companies, if they can avoid it, try to not even publicly report their margins in certain areas if, if they can avoid it. So 
I found it very interesting and, and very bizarre. But maybe it speaks to a larger issue of cultural differences between business in India and the United States. Both of you have international business experience. Eli, you in particular have worked in several developing markets. What in this book spoke to you about India's business culture? I think what really stood out to me was just how deeply personal everything was. And sure, I know you mentioned this earlier in terms of conserve really treating everybody like family. I guess to me, I, I saw that more as uh, a cultural component of working in, in India. So it's like they talked about how they send birthday cards and wedding cards and anniversary cards. And of course, they, they go to the weddings and like that, that, that is somewhat part of the business culture in India. But I, I would say like, you know, from my experience of working in several countries in Africa, also the case. Um, actually, when I, when I first started working in Rwanda on like the very first day that I flew in and landed, they were like, oh, okay, do you have like a dress somewhere in your bags? Because we're going to a wedding right now. So I changed into a dress in the airport and went to a wedding for one of my coworkers like that day. That was when I met everybody. So that kind of just like being so involved in the family uh, rang true to me from kind of my experiences working in Africa. One part I found interesting, and it, it shouldn't really be surprising, but I guess it just wasn't something I'd really thought about was how the company was like really, or certain people in the company were really against expanding to the north of India. And that like, they, you know, it's just such a different market. Like we can't compete there. Like that, that, um, and it, you know, it makes sense that like, I don't know, a, a business in Alabama versus a business in New York, like it would be pretty different to try and like compete in those ways too. And India is, you know, a huge country with like very diverse cultures, but just like that dynamic of like different regional, uh, you know, powerhouses and like the, even, even trying to, to attack different parts of India was like a big, bold step for the company. Do you guys think that this book was written more for an international audience or do you think it was written for an Indian audience? I have to say, to me, it felt like it was more written for an Indian audience. Some parts of it felt to me like they were a bit of a puff piece for Hey Mahatangadi. There was just so much of these quotes from previous employees saying how great she is and how great the company was. And she's the author of the book or the co-author. So she was choosing to have these quotes in there that are just like basically glow ups for her, which... I found a little strange for a a book that that's unless it's supposed to serve in some kind of PR role. And she mainly does her philanthropy and her investing in India. So it seemed to me that that was the audience she was going after. Talking about this culture issue, I think something that was just below the surface is that she was actually part of a minority group growing up. And I, I believe her husband was as well. And that wasn't really touched on a lot in the book, but um, she, she was actually grew up speaking a different language than the majority of people where the business was based. And so she was in like a small language community. And I wonder how those connections may have helped throughout building the business. I don't know, or maybe, maybe they didn't help at all. Maybe they were actually a disadvantage, but, but that was an interesting kind of side story throughout the book. Yeah, that's true. I, I think that there was a little bit in there about when they were looking to hire people that she said she didn't hire based on caste or ethnicity or something. But I, I agree with you, Kopak. Like, I think it was written mostly for an Indian audience. And that's where I, I guess I'm just wondering for us as American readers, if it breaks down a little, because it's like, maybe there were actually more interesting things or things that we would give more respect for if we understood it a little better. So for example, especially on the gender side, 
it does seem very unique that she became CEO of the company. But like, you know, I guess if you look in the US, obviously there's very few women CEOs of successful companies as well. So it's not like I'm coming from a bias that sees much more of it. But I think like even having more background in there of just how low India is on gender inequality and like how unique it was for her to have her MBA and how she overcame that might might help as an you know, foreign reader, I guess, to it to more appreciate her role. Did you like her? So as you got to know her throughout the book, some of it was a bit personal. How did you feel about her by the end of the book? Did you feel she was an honest narrator too? Or did you feel that there was too much of this kind of PR aspect to the book? Oh, interesting question. Obviously, I think uh, the puff piece components of the book hit you a little more than they hit me. Um, I I noticed them, but I wasn't as put off by the puff piece parts, I guess. Did I like her? So I think that she was is truly very thoughtful. And I think that she, you know, the the success of the company does speak for itself a little bit in terms of like the market share that they were able to gain in what would otherwise be like a commodities business. And as a business case, I think it's it's very interesting what they were able to do and how they were able to differentiate. And she speaks very pragmatically. And I think that a lot of the components of the book sound to me like a consultant, right? Like it is consultant talk. She was doing what a consultant project would do at the company. So I guess being a consultant, it resonated a bit with me and she was very data driven. So I liked that, right? Like, but yeah, I, I think, I think what was hard was like, she also just seemed like she was taking a lot of credit for her success, um, which obviously she's, she's writing a business book. So you're supposed to, but Definitely, like, some things didn't sit with me well. And, like, some things of just, like, the how quantitative and, like, numerically driven the success was. And it was, like, a little bit of, like, look at this success. You know, it's, like, I, I heard the $6 million revenue cited so much throughout the book. I heard the 26% family ownership cited throughout the book and Harvard Business School. And, like, all of these things where I was just, like, oh, my gosh, just stop. I get it. Like, can you tell me in three bullet points, what you did that drove that success and not the 300 or so pages of like, here's everything that we did. That wasn't the best answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I like her. I think I do, actually. I, I I really, I totally get your point, Kopech, that like, this is certainly a positive book about her, written by her and by a co-author. And I guess it's the co-author that makes me like, hate the quotes from like the workers a little bit less. Like if it was just written by her, it would feel even more cringy, I guess. But I, I like give her the benefit of the doubt that it was, you know, the co-author who did conducted these interviews and pulled in these quotes. And but who knows? Obviously, she had final edit on, you know, her book. So she certainly could have not had so many of them if she if she didn't want to. But there were also just like tangible stories about like what she'd done for people and whatnot that just don't feel like something you would make up. And so I guess, yes, it's like a hagiography, but like I think she had an impressive company. It had extreme success. And I also thought it was kind of funny that like very different from most other people we've read other than I guess maybe Stephanie Shirley to some extent, she did just decide like, I want to sell the company and like not have to deal with like all this work stuff. Like it's my whole life. And like, you know, we want to, you know, lead it, lead a good life with our children and whatnot. And so like, uh, you know, went, went to the, went to TT and said, you know, she wanted to sell it even though he didn't really want to. And then like, you know, convinced him that like it was the right thing for the company. 
Well, that's a great transition. Let's talk about selling the company. So let's dive more into that. Why exactly did they sell? Why was it the right moment to sell? And do you think that if they had not sold, they would have continued to be successful? So two, I think two things drove why they sold at the time that they did. And first is that it was personal. And I think she she would even say that in the book. She actually quoted in the book her letter that she sent to TT when she wanted to sell. And it starts with entirely personal reasons of it, why, you know, it's just like, I need to spend time with my family. My son is growing up, right? Like I need to be a part of this and so on. So it, it really did seem like it was driven for personal reasons at the start. And then secondly, there, there were business reasons that she then quoted in the letter, but it started personal. Some of the business reasons, um, it seemed like they realized that their next step really was to grow internationally. So they had some international presence, but if they wanted to continue to grow, that they would need to do much more internationally. And the best way to do that would be with a multinational partner. And then I think it was like that they had done a business review and they felt like their key threat to their market share in India would actually come from a multinational entering India. And Schneider was looking to do that at the time. And at the same time, Schneider was trying to figure out how to enter India and felt like their best way to do it would be by partnering with a local player. So it seemed like, you know, a lot of pieces just started coming together that it helped both companies achieve what they were looking to do. One other thing to add was just that it did happen in 2009, I believe it actually closed. So it's kind of, you know, the markets had obviously, you know, crashed globally. And she does talk about that, that like sort of they were in the process of doing the sale and then everything crashed and they basically just kind of reworked things. She didn't really go into too much detail as far as I could tell about about how they reworked it. But presumably they they took less money for the company because, you know, the markets had crashed and probably their, you know, short-term revenue outlook was not, you know, as rosy of the, you know, 35% growth for 10 years or whatever it had been. But I thought that was an interesting little like component to it as well is that she did, because she was committed for personal reasons, did still move forward with the sale, even though probably at like slightly worse terms because of the crisis. Yeah. And, and she also talks a bit as to why the integration was a success. And to to those quotes, Kopec, I think there were quite a few quotes from employees that are still working at Schneider today that are, you know, proud conservians still there. But one thing that I appreciated as she was talking through the details, well, I would say, first of all, she talked about cultural alignment, which I think in many books that we've read uh, so far this year, where there's an acquisition or um, a merger, it, it talks about cultural alignment. So she was aware of that. But she says, like, the devil is in the details with the integration. And as, as I've said, she does seem like she's a very detail-oriented person. So this was definitely her time to shine. But it, like to the point of she, as part of the acquisition, they made sure that promises that they had made to specific employees. So there was one, one of their employees had died in, I guess, 2004 uh, tsunami in Indonesia. And after that had happened, they had promised to his widow that they would pay for school for their children through university. And I think a few other promises. And they made sure that like that was part of the acquisition deal, right? Like they didn't want to renege on that promise. They wanted to make sure that Schneider continued on with that. And they similarly like supported a local girls school and they wanted to make sure that that continued on and Schneider would continue doing some of those uh, kind of social elements of what they had done as well. Those were things that she pointed out as to like really considering the details and hammering all of that out as part of the integration to make it a success. 
which I, I just appreciated kind of like how detailed she was, both, I guess, in the work she was doing, but then also in like sharing that with the reader of like what it meant for the devil to be in the details. Okay, thinking about the book as a whole, what's your number one takeaway? What was the most important thing that you read in this book? So this isn't what I read in the book, but this is what I recognized in the book. And that's that Hema was always looking to learn and was looking to learn in any um, from any source. So through reading books, through reading from other founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, through, you know, taking the course at Harvard, through her professors, through her mentors, that she was always looking to learn and improve. Um, And I think that that was just a really great attitude, obviously. And like, that's something that obviously we look to do uh, hosting this podcast on a monthly basis. But I, I think I saw that kind of personified in this book. I think for me, it really was the having people's families be involved in the business. It's just, it's, it's really different from the way I would have thought about things before. And I'm not saying like, for sure, if I start a company, I'm going to like, make sure that, you know, my spouse ends up working for the company and my kids end up and whatever. But like the idea that it might be good to have more family, you know, within the, the organization and the, the strengths that that can provide, I think is, is kind of a cool one, especially at like small scales of companies. I think in like large corporations, you probably do run into, into problems with, with that type of uh, situation, but you know, under, you know, a hundred employees or something like that, I think it could make, make a lot of sense. For me, I'd say it was the ethics angle that even in a very challenging environment from an ethics perspective, you can still succeed while keeping your dignity and your ethics. So I, I found that part inspiring. Okay, is there anything else about the book that we didn't talk about that you want to mention? I, I think Conserve My Campus was kind of cool. So I, I, don't, I don't necessarily remember all the details, but basically it was this program that they started to, in schools, get children to first do uh, energy conservation analyses of the schools themselves. And so, you know, they would figure out, oh, you know, the the TV is plugged in all day and that's, or, you know, the computer's plugged in all day and that's like, you know, burning, burning electricity. Like we should, we should unplug these overnight, like those types of things. And that the kids actually would like have pretty significant impacts on like the school's energy costs. Like I think she said some of the times they would drop by, you know, 20, 50% sometimes because these children really could like go around and, you know, use, uh, uh, digital meters, I guess, to, uh, to figure out, you know, how much energy was being consumed by the various, uh, you know, activities that were going on in the campus. And then that those kids would also sort of bring it on to their parents as well. And, you know, try to improve conservation, you know, at home. And that apparently after the acquisition, Schneider actually made that a, a global program. And so they, they do that all, all over the, the world now. Kopech, I, I want to push a little bit and ask you a little more on the ethics side, because that was obviously an important part of the book. And I think with doing business in India in the 1990s and 2000s, probably also today, you know, that stands out to be a company that is so focused on ethics. For me, that was, it was interesting to read about. And there was a lot of interesting anecdotes. But I'm curious what you took away from that, that you think it, you know, it, it feels like it was like more applicable to you. And I think, I think for me, I was just like, I was like, oh, this is nice, but it just like, didn't feel like something that I regularly come across. But I, I'm curious, maybe I wasn't getting something there. Yeah. So for me, it comes from kind of a life ethos. I try to be honest in most things. And I think that if I was living in a culture that enabled people to act unethically, as it seems 1990s India certainly did in um, the from the need to have to bribe officials 
to the need to have to give kickbacks to to distributors, et cetera, et cetera. I think I would really be challenged in that kind of environment. And I think it would probably uh, break me in many ways. And here's somebody who felt that same kind of conviction as me and didn't let it break them. So, you know, it, it might be that they're coming at this from something that's more of a, we're mainly talking about ethics here, but they might also be coming at it from kind of a moral perspective. And they kept their morals intact and still succeeded in that very challenging environment. So uh, I find that inspiring. And I like to think that I'd be able to do that, but I don't think I would. So I really appreciate hearing, and that kind of gives you strength for when you see yourself in an environment like that, that somebody else was able to make it through to the other side. So I, I would say it was more of a, um, a personal connection I felt to Hatsangadi a bit through her, her battles in this area. Okay, so the big question, do you recommend this book? And if you do, who should read it? So I would give a cautious recommendation. Like I thought it was an interesting book. I learned some stuff from it, but it was, I feel like a little bit long for the actual like business lessons that I got. It's not even that long of a book, but I just, I feel like it was probably like a, a New Yorker profile worth of, of content that got stretched out to a couple hundred pages. I would say if you are interested in India in the, the 90s and 2000s, I think it, it gave some insight there, although frankly, probably less than I was hoping for. I would say if you are thinking about like acquisitions in like India or something like that, I think it's actually a really good book for that. So like talking about like integrating a European multinational with an Indian corporation, I thought that that was like some of the, the really best content in it. I thought it was a really good business case study, which is ironic because it is a business case study. Uh, so, and as is referenced several times throughout the book, uh, there is an HBS case study for Conserve that at 25 pages or so, I imagine covers at least what the key points were to me. I, I did think as a business case study, uh, having done many business case studies in business school, this was very interesting. You know, I, I thought it was very interesting how they took this B2B commodities business, added a service line to it, were able to differentiate and, you know, not compete on price. Like that, that is a challenging situation. And I think that I certainly work with clients who are in the B2B world, in the commodities world, and they find their, themselves in a place where it feels like the only thing you can do is compete on price. They took that and turned it on its head and figured out how to make it work for them. So I'm happy that I know of this example and I understand what they did um, strategically to make that work. I don't think that I really needed to read the 300 or so pages on it. it we didn't talk much, but it split as like a part one, part two, where part one is more of the history of conserve. And then part two is more rattling off different business elements, although it's like not even. I don't know. They're they're not all really the same in that section. I don't think I needed all of that. I think that if I was in business school and reading this as a case study, I would find an interesting case study. But I would I probably would not tell somebody to go read the book unless they were maybe in this B2B space. And then I would say read part one and skim part two. So even though I picked it, you probably expected this, but I don't recommend the book uh, for two reasons that we've already gone over. Number one is that the business lessons are presented in kind of a laundry list form. I've read a lot of business books by this point, and there are just better business books out there for these same lessons. 
So from, from a business perspective, I don't love it. But then the other thing about business books is oftentimes they're great stories, right? They're, they're great stories about great characters. And while I find her an interesting character, I didn't trust her as a narrator because so much of the book felt like a PR piece. It felt like a vehicle to build her profile. And so I then start to question everything that I'm reading because when, when somebody goes so out of their way to, to hit you over the head with that, you start to wonder, well, are they just, how much are they not telling me that the, of the bad things that happened? So yeah, from both a personal perspective and also a business perspective, I just feel like there's more interesting, more exciting books out there with better explained lessons and with narrators that you can get in a better mindset with because you're not being bombarded with uh, profile building. So yeah, as a whole, I would not actually recommend it. So that's uh, two months in a row for you, Kopech, with being very skeptical of the narrators. Last month, we read what? Oh, no filter, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I, I have my doubts. Okay. And, you know, it's not because Hattengadi didn't come on the show, even though I emailed her. I promise. That's not the reason. Okay. So thinking about the next book we're going to read, uh, Eli, this was actually your pick. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Sure. So next month, we're going to read Brick by Brick, How Lego Rewrote the Rules of Innovation and Conquered the Global Toy Industry by David Robertson and Bill Breen, which was written in 2014. And I will say it is a little difficult to find Lego books on Amazon because obviously there's a lot of Lego toys on Amazon. But even when you go into books, there's also a lot of Lego books that support the Lego toys. So we'll make sure that we have a link to it in the show notes. I, I'm excited for the book. It, you know, this month we kind of tried to break away from the technology in Silicon Valley that we had been focusing in a bit. So we went into an energy conservation company in India. This is bringing us into a toy company in Denmark. Uh, so kind of on the other side of the world, uh, also a family-run business. I visited Lego in 2018 as part of a business school trip, actually. Uh, so I'm excited to read up a little bit more of maybe what I didn't collect during that visit. But the book, it seems like it's going to go into how Lego was on the verge of bankruptcy, just facing the challenges of new Me Too toys coming out, you know, easy copycats, but also technology being um, a new key competitor in the children's toy market. So what they did to overcome that and really lead innovation and emerge as a stronger, better company that is still profitable and one of the fastest growing companies, uh, toy companies, despite having been around for a very long time. So I'm excited to read all about what they've done in the past. Great. I'm super looking forward to Brick by Brick. Okay, before we go, is there anything you want to plug and how can listeners get in touch with you? I don't have anything to plug, but you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short or on Clubhouse at David Short. Also, nothing to plug, but I am getting a puppy in the next month. So starting next month, I will probably have an Instagram for my puppy to plug. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at image 46 What kind of puppy are you getting? Oh, it is a Cavapoo, and it is adorable. He is going to be named Prince Archie. What's a Cavapoo? A King Charles Cavalier, Cavalier Spaniel mixed with a poodle. So he'll be oh, okay. a mini poodle. So he'll be like 12 pounds, and he's a little ginger. It's going to be Very, great. You'll see him on Instagram. Very cool. 
I'm actually going to plug our international listeners. You know, actually, the majority of our listeners, the vast majority, are actually international. And our third largest uh, country is India. So it's nice that we read a book that takes place there. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. And that's it for us this month. We look forward to seeing you again next month. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit that follow button or that subscribe button in your podcast player of choice. And we'll see you next month.